0: Hi listeners, it's Carter, here to tell you about an incredible event celebrating the launch of ParCast's first book, Cults. On July 13th, crime junkies Ashley Flowers and ParCast founder Max Cutler are coming together for a night of true crime to remember, and you can be part of it virtually on Spotify Live or in person. The evening will take place in Los Angeles and feature discussions about the book, a live Q&A, and so much more. All ticket sales up to $125,000 will be matched by Max Cutler and donated to Season of Justice, a nonprofit founded by Ashley Flowers that provides financial resources to help solve cold cases and support families impacted by unsolved violent crimes. It's a wonderful cause and an evening perfect for any true crime fan. But time is running out. Register for your spot today at parcast.com slash cults. All attendees will receive a special signed copy of Parcast's new book, Colts. So don't wait. Sign up at parcast.com slash cults.
1: It was the early afternoon of July 2nd, 1937, and Amelia Earhart was missing. She and her navigator, Fred Noonan, had been flying across the South Pacific toward Howland Island.
2: A Coast Guard ship, the Itasca, was anchored there to help Amelia navigate. The ship's radio operator had heard her transmissions as she got lost. He'd answered repeatedly, but she'd never responded. Eventually, Amelia had stopped transmitting
1: around 9 a.m. By 1.45 p.m., her plane would have definitely run out of fuel, so the Coast Guard ruled. The Itasca's mission was now search and rescue.
2: But at that same moment, on the other side of the planet in Amarillo, Texas, a woman named Mabel Larimore turned on her shortwave radio set. A few minutes later, she heard a startling transmission. It was Amelia's voice, clear as day, and she was calling for help. It seemed the lost
1: aviatrix was still alive somewhere in the South Pacific, but nobody had any idea where she was among the thousands of tiny islands and the millions of miles of open water. No matter how many radio calls she made, Amelia's fate was sealed.
2: Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Molly.
1: And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer.
2: Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify.
1: This is our second episode on Amelia Earhart's disappearance.
2: Last time, we discussed Amelia's upbringing and explored how her drive for adventure led to her infamous round-the-world flight.
1: Today, we'll look at the clues Amelia left behind. We'll determine what may have happened in her final hours and how modern technology might bring us closer than ever to solving her disappearance.
2: We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us.
0: New season out on Spotify soon.
1: When Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan failed to land on Howland Island, the Coast Guard believed she'd crashed into the ocean nearby. But the Itasca's crew wasn't sure of her final position because Amelia hadn't answered any of their radio
2: calls once she got lost. But she was transmitting for hours before her disappearance, and this was an important clue. If she had simply gone silent, it'd be easy to conclude her plane ran out of fuel and crashed, killing both Amelia and Noonan.
1: However, this wasn't the case. Long after Amelia's Lockheed Electra plane should have run out of fuel, there were still emergency radio signals on her frequency.
2: After her final confirmed message to the Itasca around 9 a.m. on July 2nd, several radio enthusiasts claimed to hear Amelia's continued transmissions. Her specific frequency wasn't widely known, so for many of these casual listeners, it was blind luck they picked up anything at all.
1: Mabel Larimore in Texas was reportedly the first to hear them. She picked up a signal from Amelia around 2 a.m. local time. And note, we will be referring to local times throughout the episode.
2: Texas was seven hours ahead of Howland Island, meaning the signal came in nearly 10 hours after Amelia should have gone down. And for Amelia's radio to work, the Electra had to be on dry land. The aircraft's engine powered the generator and batteries and wouldn't work if it was damaged or underwater. If she was still transmitting, she hadn't crashed into the ocean. Mabel didn't
1: know any of those details. She only knew what Amelia said. She'd landed the Electra on a small, uninhabited island. The landing had left her and Noonan injured, and the plane was, quote, partially on land,
2: part in water. The message Mabel heard seemed to be real. She even called the local newspaper and had a reporter listen in. But nobody reported it to the Navy or Coast Guard. Mabel assumed if she'd heard the signal, the authorities had too. So she didn't report it for five decades. This
1: made some experts call her story into question. Except there were other transmissions that backed up Mabel's story.
2: At 10 p.m. on July 3rd, the NBC radio station in Honolulu broadcast a special announcement. It said, quote, Amelia Earhart, if you can hear this signal, please respond on 3105.
1: That number represented Amelia's primary radio frequency, which was only made public due to the emergency.
2: Just minutes later, a faint transmission came through on 3105, but it was a male voice, so some listeners concluded it was a fake transmission. Others speculated it was Fred Noonan. He may have been operating the radio while Amelia managed the generator.
1: Throughout the night, faint transmissions continued bouncing around South Pacific radio stations, all on
2: Amelia's frequency. But they were always garbled or buried in static. To the Navy operators, it sounded like the Electra's transmitter was running out of power. If the batteries ran out and the engine generator couldn't recharge them, Amelia would have no way to communicate.
1: Meanwhile, other operators had no trouble hearing her transmissions. The next day, July 4th, a Wyoming-based teenage radio enthusiast named Dana Randolph heard Amelia loud and clear. She said, This is Amelia Earhart. Ship is on a reef south of the equator.
2: Station K-H-A-Q-Q. Randolph's account seemed credible because it included many accurate details the teenager wouldn't have known otherwise. K-H-A-Q-Q was Amelia's call sign, and she often called her Electra, a ship.
1: Also, if the plane was partly in the water, as Mabel claimed, it could easily be on a reef. So Randolph's account was consistent with Mabel's, which hadn't been made public yet.
2: When Randolph reported the transmission to the local police, they took it seriously. They passed the message up the government channels through Navy headquarters, and eventually the news reached the Itasca.
1: Up until this point, the Coast Guard had been looking for Amelia's plane in the open sea. But now they knew she might have successfully landed, which meant there was still hope of rescue, at least until the
2: transmissions stopped. On the afternoon of July 5th, Fifteen-year-old Betty Clank in St. Petersburg, Florida, claimed to hear both Earhart and Noonan on a single transmission. Their signal was inconsistent, but she heard mentions of rising water and injuries.
1: This was the last civilian report of Amelia's transmissions. After the fifth, only a few military stations in the Pacific reported signals on Amelia's frequency, and they were
2: all exceptionally faint or garbled. This raised some major questions. Why could people on the other side of the planet hear Amelia clearly, but not the local stations in the South Pacific?
1: The answer relies on a bit of complicated science, but essentially, radio waves can travel long distances in the atmosphere thanks to harmonics. When a radio wave is broadcast on a particular frequency, like Amelia's 3105, it is also faintly broadcast on multiples of that frequency. For example, the fifth harmonic frequency of 3105 is 15575, which is what Dana Randolph was tuned into from Wyoming.
2: On these higher harmonic frequencies, radio waves can travel vast distances, even across the globe. However, it takes sophisticated technology to pick up the signals and both the Randolphs in Wyoming and the Clanks in Florida had specialized antennas and top-end radio sets.
1: With this gear, it was possible for amateur radio operators to pick up transmissions from the middle of the Pacific, even when others couldn't. But it was also possible excitable fans wanted to be a part of the very public search for the missing aviatrix. Amelia's disappearance was headline news across the country, and some civilian reports that made the newspapers
2: definitely weren't real. For example, in Los Angeles, a group of four amateur radio operators created fake transmissions. They were big fans of Amelia's, and they saw an opportunity to get a piece of her fame, except their stories kept changing.
1: At one point, they claimed to hear Amelia clearly every 15 minutes, but nobody else could pick up the same signals. Later, they said they heard Amelia using a portable generator, but when somebody pointed out the Electra didn't have one, they confessed to the hoax.
2: Although these pranksters came clean, other fraudsters flourished. By July 5th, the naval authorities had trouble separating fact from fiction. Only one thing was certain, if Amelia and Noonan were still alive, they were running out of time.
1: To maximize fuel and flight time, the Electra wasn't able to carry any extra weight. Amelia and Noonan had minimal emergency food, water, and medical supplies. Even if they weren't injured, it wouldn't take long for Amelia and Noonan to starve to death or succumb to dehydration.
2: However, A glimpse of hope came the night of July 5th when a Navy radio station in Hawaii picked up a very faint Morse code signal. It seemed to give a position 281 miles north of Howland Island, and the Coast Guard cutter Itasca rushed to the location.
1: At 9 p.m., two lookouts on the Itasca saw a green flare. Over two dozen other sailors spotted the same green light on the horizon the Coast Guard radioed a report to headquarters. They'd spotted a flare, likely from Amelia.
2: Within minutes, the story was broadcast widely on news stations. It seemed the pilot was just moments from being rescued.
1: But after exploring the area, the searchers concluded there was nothing out there but open water. No lights, no plane, no debris, and no Amelia or Noonan.
2: The next day, July 6th, the Coast Guard had to backtrack on their claim about the flare. All the news stations that had reported Amelia's imminent rescue also had to retract their stories. It was an embarrassing failure for the Coast Guard searchers. And
1: to make matters worse, Amelia's
2: frequency
1: finally went silent later that afternoon.
2: She'd been missing for four days— All told, there'd been a total of 57 reported transmissions.
1: After the Coast Guard's public humiliation, the Navy took over the search. They sent flights out over dozens of islands in the South Pacific, but their pilots never found the Electra or Amelia and Noonan.
2: The only sign of life was reported on July 9th, when a pilot flew over an island called Niku Mororo. He said he saw evidence of human activity, but that wasn't surprising. Indigenous people inhabited many islands in the region.
1: Not only that, Nicomaroro was hundreds of miles south of Howland Island. It seemed unlikely Amelia would have made it so far off course, so the Navy didn't bother to send anyone to investigate.
2: Without any other clues, the search seemed fruitless. On July 18th, President Franklin Roosevelt officially called it off. It seemed Amelia was lost forever.
1: Until a skeleton turned up on a deserted island.
2: Coming up, new scientific discoveries hint at Amelia's fate.
0: Hi, listeners. It's Carter with some truly exciting news. To commemorate the launch of Colts, Parcast's first book... Crime Junkies Ashley Flowers and ParCast founder Max Cutler are coming together on July 13th for an in-person and virtual experience you do not want to miss. The evening will take place in Los Angeles and feature a live Q&A about the book, an exclusive meet and greet, and a discussion on all things true crime. All ticket sales up to $125,000 will be matched by Max Cutler and donated to Season of Justice, a nonprofit founded by Ashley that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. It's an amazing organization near and dear to both Ashley and Max. And another great reason to enjoy this wonderful night. And it's just days away, so visit parcast.com slash cults to register today. You can also catch the event virtually on Spotify Live if you are unable to join us in person. All attendees will get a signed copy of the book and a night they'll never forget. July 13th is fast approaching, so be sure to join Ashley Flowers and Max Cutler for a very special evening celebrating the release of ParCast's new book, Cults, all for an incredible cause. Register today at parcast.com slash
2: cults. Now back to the story.
1: Amelia Earhart vanished over the South Pacific on July 2nd, 1937, just three weeks shy of her 40th birthday. For several days after her disappearance, Americans reported ongoing radio messages from her and navigator Fred Noonan.
2: These signals implied they'd gone down on an uninhabited island in the South Pacific, but nobody knew where. Amelia never provided a specific position.
1: The radio signals ceased on July 6, 1937. The search for Amelia ended two weeks later. But one person refused to give up, her husband, George Putnam. He pulled every string he had with the Navy and Coast Guard, even financing more searches out of pocket.
2: Unfortunately, it wasn't enough. After 18 months, it was clear that Amelia wasn't coming home. She was legally declared dead on January 5, 1939.
1: Then, a year later, a new lead seemed to prove Amelia had survived.
2: Once World War II began in the spring of 1939, the Pacific became a battleground. In 1940, a British expedition visited Nikumororo, an atoll created by an ancient volcano. The island looked like an oval ring, about five miles long and two miles wide, with a jungle and wide beaches surrounding a big open lagoon. The island
1: was exceptionally flat and surrounded by broad reefs. It was a tiny speck of green and white amid the Sea of Blue, nearly identical to dozens of other South Pacific atolls.
2: Nikumaroro was the same island where the Navy pilot reported seeing signs of life in the days after Amelia vanished. At the time, the Navy had believed the island was inhabited by indigenous people, so they never investigated the report.
1: But they were wrong. Nobody had lived on the island since 1892. Any recent signs of life couldn't have been from indigenous islanders. The British workers in 1940 were the first recorded visitors in years.
2: And they found the remains of someone else who'd been there recently.
1: On September 23, 1940, one of the British officers reported workers had discovered a skeleton sometime that summer. It hadn't been buried. Crabs had scattered the bones over a wide swath of jungle.
2: The remains were near an old campfire with dead turtles and birds nearby. The workers also found part of a shoe, shards of a broken bottle, and a wooden box. From these artifacts, the British officer drew some vital conclusions. The shoe
1: was a woman's size 10. The officer believed it looked European or American. The shattered bottle had once held Benedictine, a liqueur from Europe. It was quite deteriorated, definitely not from that summer's British expedition. And it was discovered over 100 feet from the waterline, too far to have washed ashore.
2: The officer suspected it might have been aboard the Electra for a celebratory toast when Amelia landed. If not, Fred Noonan was known as a drinker and might have carried the bottle in his luggage.
1: However, they'd eliminated every bit of weight they could on the plane, even jewelry. It was hard to believe a bottle of booze would have been worth the extra fuel to a seasoned navigator like Noonan.
2: But the wooden box was related to navigation. It was a carrying case for a nautical sextant. Noonan definitely had one with him aboard the plane, and it hadn't come from the British crew.
1: The box only had one identifying feature, some handwritten numbers. Nobody knew what they meant, so they couldn't be definitively tied to Noonan.
2: While these artifacts seemed to imply the campsite wasn't made by local islanders, they were hardly conclusive. But the bones were a different story.
1: There were 13, so they only formed a partial skeleton. The British officer thought they looked at least four years old, which predated Amelia's disappearance. But they were long, implying the victim was taller than most indigenous South Pacific islanders.
2: The British officer couldn't make sense of the remains on his own, so he sent them to Fiji. There, a doctor inspected them in April 1941. He concluded the bones were male, which ruled out Amelia, but they still could have been Fred Noonan.
1: Unfortunately, not long after the examination, the bones went missing. Any future investigators would have to rely on his notes.
2: And it took almost 80 years to determine anything useful from them. In 2018, a forensic anthropologist re-examined the doctor's papers, including the exact measurements of the bones. He also looked at photographs of Amelia and her medical records. And he concluded the doctor in Fiji had been wrong.
1: The anthropologist said... The bones had more similarity to Earhart than to 99% of individuals in a large reference sample. So until definitive evidence is presented that the remains were not those of Amelia Earhart, the most convincing argument is that they are hers.
2: Of course, with the bones lost to time, nobody could confirm his conclusions. But other evidence seemed to support the idea. Amelia and Noonan had made it to Nico Mororo.
1: For example, in the days following Amelia's disappearance in 1937, four different Pan American Airways radio sites joined in the hunt for the aviatrix. The stations were on Oahu, Midway, and Wake Island, each thousands of miles apart, but all reported signals on Amelia's frequency. They used direction finders, or DFs, to try and get a location on these transmissions.
2: Remember, a DF allowed radio operators to determine a person's location from the strength of their signal. Think how you might hear a bird chirping in a nearby tree. Then you can turn your head until the chirp is loudest. After that, you can accurately point toward the bird, even if you don't know exactly where it is in the tree. A radio signal is like a chirp, and the DF is your ears, turning to where the signal is loudest.
1: While the Pan-MDFs were too far away to get a precise location, they could determine the general direction the signals were coming from. If you trace the trajectory of each of these estimates, they eventually meet, just a few
2: miles from
1: Nicomaroro.
2: Additionally, in her last clear message to the Itasca, Amelia said they were flying on line 157-337. These are two endpoints on a line that intersects Howland.
1: Luckily, Noonan's navigational skills were superb. It was almost certain they were flying in a straight line. And 356 nautical miles south of Howland, that line leads directly to Nikumaroro.
2: Most important of all, Nikumaroro had a natural runway where a plane could land. The ring-shaped island had huge beaches made out of coral. When the tide went out, it exposed a flat reef that was hundreds of feet wide.
1: This was more than enough space to bring the Electra down. While the landing would have likely damaged the plane, it was very possible Amelia and Noonan could survive an emergency stopover there.
2: However, all of this evidence was circumstantial. Without definitive proof, the theory that Amelia and Noonan landed and died on Nico Mororo was still speculation.
1: Not only that, it wasn't the only explanation to emerge in the aftermath of their disappearance. Within months, a dark rumor surfaced about the true reason for Amelia's global flight. She was a spy.
2: Coming up, a new investigation uncovers an incredible artifact. Now, back to the story.
1: When Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan vanished on July 2nd, 1937, many people assumed they'd made a navigational error. After all, the pair were flying over one of the planet's widest stretches of ocean, dotted with many small islands. But one theory suggested Amelia had been tasked to investigate those islands, because a war was on the horizon.
2: In 1937, the political powder keg of World War II had already been lit. In Europe, alliances formed in response to the rise of Hitler and fascism. But Hitler built partnerships of his own, including with Japan.
1: U.S. President Franklin Roosevelt was likely worried about an impending war with Japan. Amelia's relationship with Roosevelt and his wife Eleanor was well known, so she must have been aware of his concerns. After all, their support was the primary reason she could do the global flight at all. As we discussed last time, the Roosevelts ensured she had a single-use runway on Howland Island.
2: After that, the president may have asked her for a favor in return, like spying on Japanese installations in the South Pacific. If so, Amelia may have been captured during the operation.
1: In 2017, a photo was discovered in U.S. government archives that appeared to show Amelia, Noonan, and the Electra all in Japanese custody.
2: The photograph was buried in U.S. Naval Intelligence files, and it was labeled Jaluit Atoll. This is part of the Marshall Islands, not far off of Amelia's flight path between Papua New Guinea and Howland. She'd only have to alter her course slightly to reach Jalewit.
1: The photo depicts a Japanese harbor with many fishing boats and steamships. It's taken from a dock looking out at the water with several people milling about. Most of them have their backs to the camera, including
2: a small feminine figure with short hair. It almost looks like Amelia. And to the left, there's another tall, slender figure who resembles Fred Noonan. Most important of all, a big metal object sits on a boat nearby, and it's the same shape and size as Amelia's Lockheed Electra.
1: However, there are a few inconsistencies. The metal object is blurry, so we can't say for sure if it was an airplane. And Amelia's hair was much shorter than the figures in the Jaluit picture.
2: Most importantly, the photo is hardly proof the Japanese military held the aviators against their will. In the image, they aren't restrained, nor are any uniformed soldiers or sailors visible.
1: Moreover, this theory doesn't match up with Amelia's actions prior to takeoff. If she were on a secret mission for Roosevelt, there was no reason to publicize the global flight so heavily. But her husband George, a master of public relations, made sure Amelia's flight made headlines around the world.
2: Even Eleanor Roosevelt vehemently denied this rumor, saying, quote, We loved Amelia too much to send her to her death.
1: And of course, if Amelia had been captured, her plane should have turned up somewhere in or near Japan. But it's never been discovered, meaning no explanation for her disappearance has been
2: proven. If it had crashed in the ocean, there would have been debris, oil, or some other evidence drifting in the sea. Likewise, if the pair had landed on Nicomaroro, the plane should have been somewhere near the island. But there was no sign of the Electra on land or sea.
1: So in 2019, an expedition set out to Nicomaroro to learn the truth once and for all. The leader was Robert Ballard, The same ocean explorer who discovered the final resting place of the Titanic. If anyone could find the Electra, it was him.
2: The ship had more technological equipment than any other expedition that had searched for Amelia before. Two submersibles with high-definition cameras, multiple sonar arrays, and various robotic boats all plunged into the sea off Nicomororo.
1: But they didn't find a thing. The only discovery was that Mororo was actually the peak of a huge underwater mountain
2: called a Seamount. It was possible the Electra landed, then washed off the beach. If that happened, it would have sunk thousands of feet down the mountainside, far deeper than the expedition could explore.
1: But while the sea search came up empty, a shore party made one important discovery on the island. An old broken jar. When the pieces were reassembled, it looked exactly like a container of Dr. C.H. Berry's anti-freckle ointment from the 1930s.
2: Amelia had freckles, and she'd hated them ever since she was a child. She was also on a highly publicized trip where she was going to be heavily photographed. It made sense she might carry a jar of cream to cover her least favorite feature.
1: It still wasn't proof of Amelia's fate. Nobody knew for certain what she had on the plane with her when she disappeared. But all the evidence on Nicomaroro makes it the strongest possibility for her and Noonan's final resting place.
2: The most likely scenario is they flew on the 157-337 line until they saw Nicomaroro. With just a few minutes of fuel left, Amelia decided to land there rather than ditch in the sea.
1: It was likely around low tide, so the plane landed on firm sand and coral. This allowed them to stay in the plane calling for help until the radio's batteries died.
2: Once the tide came in, the batteries and radio were useless and the pilots had to abandon the Electra. Fred and Amelia were injured and hungry, but they held out as long as they could. Within a few days they died and their bodies were consumed by island creatures.
1: This narrative seems clear enough, but a few questions remain. It's unclear how Noonan and Amelia ended up off course landing on Nicomaroro instead of Howland Island. Likewise, it's clear they were having some kind of radio problem, but at the time of the disappearance, it was unclear exactly what went wrong.
2: That is, until a few days after Amelia took off from Papua New Guinea, when locals found a long length of wire on the runway. It looked a lot like the radio receiver antenna on the underside of the Electra.
1: Later, investigators pored over photos taken during her final takeoff. In the early pictures, the antenna was still on the aircraft. But in the final images, it was missing.
2: Without a reception antenna, Amelia was destined for trouble the moment she left the ground. But her fate wasn't solely due to technical problems. Amelia should have been able to save herself if she'd made a few decisions differently.
1: Amelia never learned all she could have about the complicated radio gear. This meant, in an emergency, she didn't have the depth of knowledge necessary to troubleshoot. After all, her radio direction finder still worked. If Amelia had simply switched to transmitting on the DF frequency, she likely could have talked to the Coast Guard sailors on the Itasca.
2: The way Amelia communicated was also problematic. The Itasca's captain and radio operator were both frustrated Amelia never told them her heading, nor any specifics about her direction, wind speed, or fuel levels. And when she said she was flying along the line 157-337, Amelia didn't give a reference point for where the line started.
1: This was strange for an experienced pilot. Her communication was vague, as though she was talking to someone who already knew the information.
2: And when someone is lost, details like that matter. Amelia didn't give nearly enough information for an effective search and rescue.
1: She may have overestimated her abilities, making her reluctant to ask for help. She may have even believed she couldn't ask for help without damaging her reputation. She'd learned early on she could only rely on herself. When tragedy had struck her family during her childhood, Amelia had turned to her own coping skills. It isn't hard to imagine when tragedy struck in the air, she also relied on her own skills, even when they were far from perfect.
2: The truth was, Amelia wasn't an exceptional pilot. She could fly safely, but much of her fame wasn't based on her talent, but her timing and the novelty of aviation. Amelia didn't have to learn the details about the radio, the plane, or navigation. She'd be famous even if she simply took off and landed safely.
1: Still, no matter her fate, Amelia was a daring adventurer and a model for countless young women in the past century. She knew her life was dangerous, and she embraced adventure anyway.
2: Before she left on the global flight, Amelia left an open letter in case tragedy struck. She wrote, quote, Please know I am quite aware of the hazards. I want to do it because I want to do it. Women must try to do things as men have tried. When they fail, their failure must be but a challenge to others.
1: Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries.
2: Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify.
1: See you next time.
2: And remember, never take We Don't Know for an answer.
1: Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, Sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kotovich. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Andrew Messer, edited by Mallory Kara and Angela Jorgensen, with fact-checking by Haley Milliken and research by Mickey Taylor. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.
0: Hi, it's Carter, here to remind you that a very special evening with crime junkies Ashley Flowers and ParCast founder Max Cutler is just days away. It's an event celebrating the release of ParCast's first book, Cults, and you can be a part of it virtually on Spotify Live or in person. The evening will take place in Los Angeles on July 13th and feature discussions about the book, a live Q&A, and more. Plus, all ticket sales up to $125,000 will be matched by Max Cutler and donated to Season of Justice, a nonprofit founded by Ashley Flowers that provides financial resources to help solve cold cases and support families impacted by unsolved violent crimes. This has all the makings of being the true crime event of the year, so don't miss out Register for your spot today at parcast.com slash cults. All attendees will receive a special signed copy of ParCast's new book, Cult's. That's parcast.com slash
2: cults to sign up today.